and I am so excited to continue our month of music with you. My guest this week is Kagi King. She is, how do you even describe her? Um, a guitar phenom, somebody who is a musician who has pushed the boundaries of any definition, any template, any sort of box that you can imagine trying to describe music, especially focused on playing guitar and a variety of instruments with strings. She grew up in Atlanta, sort of a self-described, extremely anxious and awkward kid, and turned to music at a really young age, primarily though as a drummer, as a way to kind of escape and feel good and get out of her head. It was never supposed to be her career though. That was never her intention until she found herself in New York at NYU, again, studying something entirely different, but an experience after that would change things and set her on a course that nobody ever really, um, especially not her, saw coming. It's sort of like the dream story that you hear about, but this was her reality. And she has continued to grow and evolve and create stunning music in the world since then. In today's conversation, we explore this eye-opening, powerful, moving journey. So excited to share. And as always, be absolutely sure to stay tuned to the end where Kaki actually arrived with her own beautiful guitar that she normally plays, but decided to actually grab the guitar that I made at the end and play that for us. And it was so magical to actually um, to hear what came out of her. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. What you guys don't know is in the studio, we have a couple of guitars hanging here, and one of them is a guitar that uh, you guys have probably heard me talk about in the past, which I made last year. And and I kind of walked in and immediately grabbed it off the wall and started playing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this guitar has never sounded that gorgeous and never will sound that gorgeous again. So thank you for blessing that instrument right off I, the bat. Well, you're very welcome. I really, I love the simplicity. The thing that drew me at first was the ultra simple rosette. Yeah. Like it couldn't be more simple. Yeah. You've sort of hinted at a circle, which I awesome. love. I, I like, and it's a bit of a minimal thing until you get up towards like the, the head and then it gets a little bit weird. <laughs> Well, the wood is doing the work for itself. Yeah. So, uh, on, uh, I mean, what you're doing over the last couple of years, especially, is really fascinating to me. Interviewing or 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 bring a lot of visual elements into your work mm-hmm. as well. I want to take a big step back in time um, because your approach to music, your approach to creativity, seems so distinct, and your voice is so clear and original and different. Which always makes me want to know, like, when did when did you really start to explore? Well, first music and then develop into your voice. So if we take a step back, you're, um, you grew up in, in Atlanta or mm-hmm. outside of Atlanta? Yeah, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, in the city or just like I right mean, outside? out, you know. Yeah. Or is the, it all kind of like a blend of... At the time, it was either the city, city or the, you know, estates around it. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, unfortunate enough to grow up in a place where there was no sidewalks. It was very beautiful, mm. very much in the woods, but very disconnected, which uh, I've... I think I've, you know, lived half my life there, now half my life in New York. So I've reconnected myself. Right. Um, what kind of kid were you? What kind of kid was I? I was a tomboy. I was a, uh, so I, I sort of started off tomboy, morphed into hideously insecure, <laughs> awkward, closeted gay teen that, I mean, really it was, it was, and, and I know that this is a, such a common story. Mm. And I'm definitely not a, I'm not a unicorn, but it was painful. It was just painful being in my skin. Uh. And I developed like really serious chronic anxiety. And I I had terrible trouble, I mean, not making friends, but connecting with people, just hold, like understanding what mm. humans were. But I was, it, yeah, it was bad. It was bad being a, being a teenager, but I had music. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious also, I mean, you said you were rock where you also... You're, you're growing up, you're gay, you're in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, when was this around? Like, uh, like This is in the, in the mid-90s. Okay. So it, it's interesting because it was almost like people were talking about being gay and what that was, as opposed to people just not talking about it. Yeah. So, and I don't know which was worse, sort of hearing what people had to say about gay people versus 
hearing nothing, mm. which may have been a little simpler. But whatever. I mean, we all, I mean, you know, life's not perfect. But it was, um, I think it was just a waiting game of like, when can I leave this place? Yeah. Well, of course, now you go to Atlanta and it's like this amazing. Right. It's like this, <laughs> this hot scene hot with like scene all this every, like great music and culture. It's diverse and yeah. it's fun. Yeah. So it really, I think a lot of it, again, you know, it, it's it's like wherever you go, there you are. I mean, that was part of me being disgusted by my own self. And that would have, that would have happened anywhere. Mm. Yeah. What was the awkwardness about? I mean, was it a, a, was it more generalized than that? Um, or was it just the fact that every kid is, is awkward? It sounds I like what you're was, describing yeah, is more than... It, it was very, it was a universal awkwardness yeah. and it was a kind of having no idea where I sat, like where, where my place was and having nothing that I liked or was good at except music, which was not a thing that a lot of girls did, but that mm. didn't, that wasn't the issue because... I wasn't, I was certainly sort of more on the wavelength of boys. It was just a, it was just a get me out of here kind of feeling. Mm. And which again, I think is super, is very common and, and, and really normal. And I have grown in my wisdom <laughs> and now to, to really appreciate that and to appreciate those years of thinking that I was special and that I was also like the biggest piece of crap at the center of the universe, that kind of thinking, you know, just the self-obsession and self-hatred wrapped mm. around each, it, itself to, to now I'm the opposite of that. Now I'm very not interested in khaki king. I'm very interested in everything else that is not me. Nah. And it's, it's, it's incredibly relieving. Yeah. Well, I mean, what role did music play in that transition? Well, music was the, you know, again, it was sort of this, it was this, this place that at the intersection of everything that I loved and everything I was good at. And it did form the basis of my social life in the absence of a sort of normal, healthy social mm. life where you speak to people. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, meeting, that. <laughs> yeah. That like that, that wasn't me, but I did have, I played in bands and I hung out with guys that smoked cigarettes and, you know, and I played gigs and I was playing drums and bass and guitar was something that I grew up playing. But it started to take this back seat. So socially, thank God, I was saved by the fact that I could, you know, I had a I had a minivan, I had a place to rehearse in my garage, and I had amps and drums. And so it was like everyone could come over and we could and I could make a band. And that was what mm. that was basically what I spent most of my time doing. And then the guitar as an instrument in the you know formulation that I've created out of it now was something that became more and more like my private world. So there was this sort of saved by music in the social world and then saved by music in this, you know, existential nah. fear and, and you know, panic and terrifying anxiety where music just, it just made it go away. It just went away. My brain just couldn't have, it didn't have enough room for, for thought. And so that was the genesis of my, uh, not some of my my guitar technique, but but definitely the place where I started writing music because I felt writing was very important. I always admired, from a very early age, I admired novelists, playwrights, I admired directors, I admired, you know, people that wrote symphonies. I, I was always into the, not the performance of the thing, but the genesis. Mm. Like what is, who, you know, where does the thought begin? Yeah. Where's the spark? I thought that writing on an instrument or for music was the highest goal. Yeah. Were you actually, um, did you journal? Did you write just independently also as a kid? Not really. No, I didn't. I did not. I wasn't interested in those thoughts. Yeah. Well, it's almost like, it sounds like you had your form of expression. Like you had your go-to thing to get whatever you needed out, out. Mm -hmm. And that was music. 
Um, and I think for a lot of people, the like the act of journaling is their thing. Yes, for it's, sure. That's where they like, they just, it all comes out of them. I mean, I had a lot of friends that, t- that kept just funny. I have a journal from a friend from high school that's sitting on a desk. It needs to be mailed to him. Oh, but he's a funny. moving target, but he it, it kind of came, you know, cleaning out my parents' closets and whatnot of, you know, <laughs> eventually there'll be no more of me left nah. at the family home. Yeah, but, and, you know, it was sort of a mix of, like, his song lyrics, other people's song lyrics, some Soundgarden, some Stone Temple Pilots, and thoughts and ruminations on life, which I never really, like, I was uninterested in my thoughts and ruminations on life. They weren't even, they weren't even sort of goth cool. They were just <laughs> pathetic. I was much more interested in feeling and, the like, when I, you know, learned very early on, I mean, this is something I, you know, was intuitive for me, but I kept reading these quotes as, you know, music is the language of emotion. And I thought, that is it. I need a language of, of emotion. And that is why writing music was so important to me. But again, it was not something that I shared with other people. It was just something I did on my own. Yeah. That was yeah. like your internal processing. It was like your sacred space almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, drums. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Um, <laughs> Because you go from a kid who's sort of like withdrawn, it sounds like, in a lot of ways, and drums is about the most forward-facing, aggressive. Uh, it is forward-facing and aggressive, band, but that's right? exactly yeah, right. Got it, got so, it, got it. So, like, it, for it. instance, you know, who's the drummer for, who's the drummer for Coldplay? Uh, I couldn't tell you. You don't know that right. guy. That guy's a millionaire. Well, we yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, right. that guy's a millionaire, and he gets to play in one of the biggest rock bands on earth, and no right. one knows his name. So I um, I definitely, I think I still, to this day, I'd st- if someone came along and, and wanted to hire me for their to be their drummer in their arena rock band, I would totally go for it. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. Um, so I would, I'd already been playing guitar, and at nine, I think, I think fourth grade, orchestra and band started in, mm. in elementary school, and my, and my, my mother and my father said, uh, well, Kaki can play guitar. And they said, well, we don't have any music. We literally don't have anything we could give to her. But why doesn't she, why doesn't she just play drums? Because that's, guitar's a rhythm instrument, so it'll be a rhythm instrument anyway. Right. So yeah, so, I, so all of my musical education comes through playing percussion in, in junior, in, in elementary school and middle school and high school marching band. Yeah, I, it's so interesting also because you can, I mean, your guitar playing is so clearly influenced by your percussion background. Yeah. You know, um, and in ways that you don't even realize like, like until how? well, the left hand will be doing something completely separate from the right hand, and yeah. that I will interlock the rhythm. So something relatively slow and easy on the left, something relatively slow and easy on the right, and this can be purely melodic, purely you know something that sounds very open and pretty. But the fact is that the left hand and the right hand are just doing a pitter patter, and I'm doing one after the other. So left, mm. right, left, left, right, and so when you speed that up. It sounds extremely fast. I'll play it on your guitar later. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it do, but it comes from drumming. It's informed by drumming. It just doesn't is not as obvious as yeah. some of the other things I do, where I literally am tapping on the guitar, hitting the. Guitar. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, it, it's. I would almost imagine you can hear stuff because that's obviously it's coming through you. But it's like there's there's a there's an awareness of what's happening, why it's happening, how's this conversation going on between like both hands and something happening in the middle in a way where people outside. They just know there's something magical happening, but they don't quite, they're not able to deconstruct sort of like the more nuanced experience of it. That's okay. Yeah. I, you know, it's all a means to an end. I mean, if the if the end result sounds lame or doesn't touch you or has been sort of the chicken McNugget is mm. that Khaki King plays guitar in a weird technique way. But the truth is that Khaki King writes songs. I'm referring to myself in the third person now. It just sounds pretty obnoxious. But know that I write songs using a technique to further the composition to create something that you haven't heard before. 
Yeah, so I agree with that. So, so you're you're playing in bands, you're playing drums, finding. I mean, not just escape, but it sounds like therapy through, mm-hmm. through music. Also, yeah, definitely. I mean, is it helping you essentially discover your identity and reclaim? Because it sounds like you went from a really angsty place. By the time you actually left high school, were you out of that angsty place or were you just kind of like, okay, would, at least I have something to hang on to? I was definitely getting there. Yeah. It was a lot. It sort of got w- worse before it got better. Yeah. Um, How so? I, mean, I think that I had a very, well, I'm, n- I'm never going to really, I've, I've been through this process of un- unwrapping what happened hmm. to me, but I came to New York City with an upset stomach at age 19 that didn't stop being upset until age 20. It was, it was a, I'm not, I don't really know what it was. If it's just that I had a very bad general anxiety disorder that just plagued me. If it was that I had never been, you know, being on my own for the first time, I certainly wasn't, uh, well, no, I, I was, I was definitely coddled by, you know, living in the suburbs and, just not having this, you know, I think I I just didn't have any experience with other people, like zero. And being able to express my sexuality for the first time, which is, imagine if you've just, if you've never had that, you've never been able to even utter the words and suddenly here they are and they're coming out and, and you're able to be yourself for the first time. It's traumatic. It's horrible. It's difficult. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think that, um, but again, there was guitar, like there are songs on my very first album that were written during that time, during that first year in New York. So I will never really be able to tell anyone or know or go back 20 years and do a full body blood workup of what the hell, whatever, you know, mineral I was missing, but something was missing and I slowly got it. And I don't know how to in, be instructive other yeah. than to say that I, I just, I took, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and I didn't give up and I kept playing music. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so, so you weren't actually even out until you came to New York, mm-hmm. right? So simultaneously you leave home, you come out, you go from Atlanta, kind of suburbanist Atlanta, it sounds like to like the biggest, fastest city on yeah. the planet. And you're reclaiming a sense of guitar also, which is like a, like a massive amount of disruption. It's a lot of in disruption. In a really short amount of time, yeah. um, which would throw anybody. Um, but it sounds like also it, it unleashed a lot for you to a certain extent. Yeah, it did. And I think by sophomore year of, of college, I was I was attending NYU. It, I was just a different person. Yeah. Um, and I think it took that year of of physical shock and allowing myself to be who I was to, it just, it just took what it took. You know, I, um, I remember there was a girl on my floor freshman year who, and this does happen a lot. This happens to a lot of people. And and I think that if it's happened to you, don't be ashamed of it. Some people move away from home and they cannot even, even a few, you know, hours away. And it's just, it's too much. And people do return because, you know, just such a different setting can throw people off. And I remember there was a girl on my floor who did was, was struggling a lot and she moved back home to California. And I was like, well, that's just not going to be me. I'm just, I'm mm. just going to, just going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tough it out. And, um, and I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so guitar in that first year also, I mean, it sounds like, was that when you really made a shift from saying, okay, so that's kind of like my central thing? No, uh, I was still playing drums. Oh, no I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, I played. Around the city or? Uh, yeah. 
I was playing again, like I was playing drums and bass in everyone's band. Right. Um, in my sophomore year, I actually gained access. So the, the we, you know, colleges used to have typing rooms because you have to go do your papers and if you don't have a typewriter, you have to do a typing right, room. Right. So none of, by, you know, the late 90s, none of the typing rooms existed. So I got the key, like the one and only key to the typing room in my dorm. And I moved my <laughs> drums right on in and I sat when my band was rehearsing. And it's like, it was so funny because so, I was in several bands at the time and no one ever questioned whether or not we should be making all of this noise. Like right. you'd come in to the dorm and hear this raucous noise coming from the basement. And no one ever went like, I, I just think no one was ex- like in charge. No one had that job. Yeah, no, I was still I was still doing what I knew to do. I was still doing the thing that I knew that connected me to other people, mm. which was how can I play in your band? How can I support you, your vision, without having this um, pressure to make it? Or, you know, I didn't, I certainly wasn't interested in, you know, realizing my vision. Yeah. I mean, with, in your mind at that time, right? Because you're at NYU, so you're yeah. studying something I'm else. studying you're something. Not, you're not there for music. No, right? no. I'm not there for music. I was I was there to, to read and get good at crossword puzzles, apparently. Because that's just <laughs> like about every the good college only student. thing drink that came a lot of out coffee, of it. Right. Yeah. So in your mind, even when you're you're in college, you're like, you, you have the room, you're playing with like, your band. Is the idea of this actually ever becoming like your livelihood or your life or your profession anywhere? Is is there like a seed of that even in your mind? Well, again, it was like, I just want to be the arena rock, yeah. g- you know, goddess drummer that everyone forgets their name. Like I, I did not, it, it in terms of going through the, the actions, I couldn't even go through the ordeal of making a flyer for a gig. I mean, that was too <laughs> much for me. It was not an ambition. And I think it was like a, we all have our sort of dreams and fantasies of something that's interesting to us that, but the steps to get there along the way seemed so intangible to me that I couldn't, I just, I wasn't going to be able to put them together in my own head. And as it turns out in my own career, I didn't even really put the steps together. They were sort of put together for me, which was, which I think is interesting. So how did that happen? Um, well, we can jump to 9-11. And my graduation date, so I had summer semester and I was due to graduate September 12th. Okay. September of 2001. And um, so uh, that didn't happen because the city was on fire. And the months that uh, followed 9-11, if you were in New York, were very difficult and confusing uh, to say the least. And I had just moved to Brooklyn. I just sort of like, you know, college was behind me and the unknown was in front of me. But instead of the thing that I wanted to do, which was just, you know, get a kind of steady job, figure out what I want to do and probably go to grad school. I was left like, who, you know, who knows what this world is? What is this universe we live in now? This again, it's funny because the separation from people became too much for me. And at some point I thought, okay, also I didn't, I was running out of cash. So I thought I, I, if I go and play in the subway, at least I'll see friendly faces. Like it really was that simple. So I went to the subway and I dragged this portable amp that I, I could recharge. And I started to play m- some music. And the reaction that people had to that was so profound because subway music is part of New York City culture. It feels, you know, whether you like it or not, at least it yeah. feels lively and normal and, and human and whether you're into the music or not, at least it's there. It's present. Its absence is is worse, much yeah. worse than its presence. So people were not just 
appreciative of what I was doing as a guitar player. They're just appreciative of my existence, the fact that I was standing on a subway platform making them feel okay. And again, this wasn't a week after. This was months after because mm. everything was so torn up. And I think the trauma to heal took, I mean, you know, we're still, it's still, it still affects people. And um, from that, people would often say, do you have a CD I can buy? Keep in mm. mind, 20 years ago, people wanted to. <laughs> the CD is this archaic format that, you know, spins around. Anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll include a, an illustration of it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. You just, you know, it's ra- circular. So I thought, well, that's this is great. If I can make $10 every time someone asks me this, then I'll be doing really well. So I, I, t- I took some time to record all the guitar demos that I'd been working on into a CD. And I pressed it myself and I did the artwork myself. And I just, you know, it was like printing it on my home printer. And, you know, I can continue the story because it's a pretty good one. But like, that is how every, that's the, that's the beginning of everything. So keep going with this. Well, (laughs) the CD itself literally physically made its way without anything to do with me from a friend to a who knows who to the person that booked the old knitting factory, which is the greatest club of all time in um, Tribeca, which is no longer there. And it had four, at the time, it had four different stages. And the tiniest room was the tap room. And it was basically a, a bar with a lot of great beer. And it always had, there was always, they always wanted to have something free. And this was the craziest thing. This was a paid gig. So they called me or emailed me or something and said, hey, we got your, I mean, this is like Hollywood. Okay. I can't tell you how little I had to do with making any of this happen. But so just wait. So they asked me to play there, do a residency for a month, which is what they they would do with people. And they would pay me $100 a night. And I would even get bar receipts if the bar did really well. And I would sell CDs. So I would make a few hundred bucks, which was like, a, I mean, dream come true. And so, at this legendary venue. At this legendary venue, like, yeah. And yeah. then, so I played there. I did that, I think I did that two months straight. And during that two months, someone bought the CD for me and emailed me and said, I have a management and record label, like management company and record label, and we'd really like to work with you. And that man managed me for the next 12 years. That's the story that never happens. It's never, it never happens. I'm <laughs> sorry. Like I'm so That's sorry. Like I feel <laughs> terrible when I tell people this story because there's nothing, right. there's nothing that I can give in, there's there's no there's no moral reward here. There's no struggle of me. There's just the thing that I do say to people based on that information is that if you focus all of your attention on the important thing, for me was the music, then everything else works out. It finds its own way. It's mm. like it's like it was like going. It was like it went viral. That's what happened. That was the early yeah, version of it. It was like yeah. old old school viral. It was something that people just connected to, you know. And I remember, I think Time Out wrote up wrote up something cool. And this was in the space of two months, right? So Time Out wrote, wrote up something. And this woman, I was in the bathroom at the knitting factory, and this woman said she mispronounced my name. It was really cute, and she said. Oh yeah, well I live up on the upper. Oh, here we are, on the upper something side. And I read, you know, I read that you were something I should really co- go downtown to check out. And I thought, and she wasn't even being like a fan. She was just like, right. I'm here to, I'm here because I read a thing. And I was like, this is how is this is crazy and impossible. But I, but so yeah. So the, so the only thing that I do have to say to people when they do say, how did you get your start? And what did you do? And what were the steps? And how hard? What was it? I was just say, look, 
for as easy as that was, the previous 10 years were as hard as they could possibly have been. And what I did was I wrote good music and I allowed it to be accessible by the world and it made its own way. So that's my, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> that's my go-to. <laughs> but that's such an important story, right? Because so, I mean, it's not like you were an overnight success. It's no. not like magically no, that, and that's you went true. down, yeah. you were busking, somebody picked up a CD and then ta-da, two months later, you're playing at the knitting factory and everybody wants to talk to you. You know, this was like the fact that you could create something that was so moving, so compelling, so well put together, you know, that people would want to pass it around and then it would lead to this. Yeah. Like you said, that's about like all the years that led up to that. That's about like you, your emotions, mm -hmm. your angst, your skill, your devotion to craft, like playing in the basement with like, you, you know, your friends for years. Yeah. I think it's just, where that came yes. Like, and I think it happened at a younger age than yeah, for a lot I of guess. people, but it definitely, I mean, there was that the whole 10,000 hours that was there, nah. the, the like pain and drama of things not working out want, you know, whatever that meant to teenage me, that was there. Mm. But I do think there was also a little bit of strength for the, in the years to come in the idea that I did not want this more than anything. This was something that I just did. It was beyond me as a person to say no to it. It was just something I just loved doing and did and was always going to do one way or the other. And I think that there is a lot of comfort in that for me because to this day, I still play crappy gigs. You know, I mean, like, like they happen and there's so much love in playing and joy in the focus and thinking and, and the non-thinking and the writing and all of it. And, and so I still love what I do, even though it's not always awesome, but yeah. it's pretty awesome. Well, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, like the worst day, <laughs> yeah. you know, in that gig compared to sort of like the average day doing something that is completely disinteresting to you or... Yes. You know, it's still, you know, probably like a, a pretty good day. It's a pretty good <laughs> comparatively day. Comparatively speaking. Sometimes I long for things that I'd be, that I am disinterested in because sometimes I long for the separation. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be able to kind of turn it off and step back. Or... To be able to have less, in, like sort of a, to be able to return to that time hmm. that was just pure pleasure and there was no fear and there was no like financial fear or is this going to be a success or not? It was just, we're just going to play and it's going to be lovely. I always see jobs that I think I could do that I could be mm. good at. And like, sometimes I'll get an, a, a carton of eggs and they have little stamps on them. Yeah. And I think I could stamp those eggs. <laughs> you know, I just, you probably could I probably too. could. Probably I'd probably be, be really, eggs. really yeah. gentle with, with each egg. Um, no, I, I think that there's, there's always, especially once it became, once it became my, my only source of income, it, be, it, it, it did shift into yeah. like, <laughs> is this is really what we want to do. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. A couple of questions. One, um, going back to the moment where, um, so I was in, I'm a long-time New Yorker too. I was here 9-11. I was here for a long time before and and ever since. So I, I get like, there was something that happened in the city that as much as the rest of the country was suffering, there were, it was different in, in was, the city. Yeah, There was an energy that was profound and heavy, and but also in a weird way beautiful. There was an openness yes. and, a, and, a, and a willingness to just recognize other people's humanity and give in support of it mm-hmm. that I, I haven't seen since in the city. Yeah. I wonder what it was like for you trying to find that sense of connection, stepping onto the subway platform for the first time shortly after that moment, playing for the very first time in front of people at that immediate moment in time. (laughs) It was very catalytic. It was a lot of energies coming together. For me, I was just as grateful as other people were. So I was just as grateful to have a place to go play guitar. And, you know, and, and there were other like open mics around the city I think I played at Sidewalk Cafe. I think I, you know, I mean, I I was doing my little thing here and there, but it was in the subway that, I mean, people would write me these, these notes or people would, they'd miss their train. There was something that was, that was 
compelling them. It was calling to them. And it wasn't me. It was the music. And I really need to emphasize that because people get really hung up on, you know, the great player and the great this or that. I mean, like the, it was the music and it is that music has a power beyond me as woo as that sounds. It's true. And the writing of it. Yes, it was me. And it was the years and years and years of practice and hard work and all of that stuff. But again, it didn't, a lot of those songs just, they weren't born out of the genius that is my head. They just happened. And I think that there was something that was, you know, calling to people that was healing. So yeah, I got a, you know, and I think, I think my first time on the subway, I didn't even go out there to make money. I had my guitar case behind me and people were like stuffing dollars hmm. into it. <laughs> and and, I, and that's when I realized, oh, wow, this could be a nice, yeah, it's like they, they were like, extra work. We, we can't not thank you for this in some yes, way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm sure that many subway musicians had similar experiences, just the willingness to come and be, you know, make, make it feel normal again, I think was really important. But yeah, I've, I've, I have not had an experience as profound. The the what I actually did for the ten year anniversary of my first album is I played the whole thing through on the subway platform, hmm. and I invited you know I just told people where it would be, and I think a group of like fifty or sixty people showed oh, up. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it was cool. I wonder if anybody sort of like you know, like now was at that very first performance. It still sort of like follows you and listens to you and like. Or even if in that moment, that 10-year anniversary, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> it would have been. I mean, I, I do get a lot of people who want to out, they sort of want to outdo each other yeah. and impress me on like how deep <laughs> a fan, fan they right, are, right. like how far we go back, how many shows, right, right. how far they drove that night. Yeah. That's pretty funny. So you're, you're out of NYU. This magical experience happens. Did you know at that moment when you're like, okay, so I'm at the Knitting Factory, but you're still pretty fresh out of college. Yeah. Did you know at that moment that, okay, this is actually what I'm going to do? Or no. did it still take time? It took a lot of time. It took until, so I, I put out that first album. I mean, that that collection of demos is my first album. That mm. was never intended to be an album. It was just, you know, grabbing a little recording time here and there with friends. So that album to me is just so... It's so raw and it's kind of incredible that people still have the reaction to it that they do. And I started to tour. So I was, you know, being, I had a proper manager, I had a proper label and that's what you do. You start touring. I was opening for a lot of jam bands because that was the scene they were in, uh, you know, interesting in a lot of ways, but very, you know, like a, a great lesson in how to comport oneself when you are in a situation that you may not prefer mm -hmm. and a great, great lesson on professionalism and just how to show up for yourself. And I started touring by my, like around the country on my own. Um, so we're going from like, you know, 15 year old, 16 year old khaki who can barely leave the house in Atlanta to less than a decade later. And I am, you know, flying to Denver, renting a car, headed to Aspen to play a gig for a bunch of hippies. It doesn't start till 1 a.m. Then I'm like flying out to San Francisco, playing the Great American Music Hall, you know, stuff like that. So it, it happened really quickly. I had to grow up. I was, it was when I grew up, uh -huh. was age 23. And, you know, it takes the age that it takes, whatever. But, you know, being responsible for being alone and responsible for, my for myself in all kinds of unkind, unforgiving environments yeah. was, was, was a lot of growth. I was signed, I'm getting to the point of when I realized this is going to be my job. I was signed to, I mean, meanwhile, I had like, you know, I worked at Sam Ash for a summer. I worked in the basement of NYU library for two weeks. And then I uh, had worked at Blue Man Group. So I was in the band at Blue Man Group. And I think the same, in the very same week, I got 
I got a I got a record deal and I got the job at Blue Man Group. It was pretty it was a pretty good week and I was still 22. <laughs> so And for those who don't know, maybe Blue Man Group is this legendary yeah, I mean, performance now, slash yeah. music slash thing that's been in the city forever. It's been forever. I mean, God, it's almost yeah. like it, that it's probably been almost 30 years, but at that time I was when I was still at the Astro Place, the original, not yeah. the original original, but the like, you know, the the production like, that had been going for so long before it became like Blew this up across the world. Yeah. Um, was that when Ian was still there? That Ian had just left, but Ian got me the job. Oh no, kidding! Ian Pei was a friend of a friend, and yeah. I gave him a record. I gave him a CD, and he and he knew that I was tapping. So he actually emailed me and said, "They're auditioning for Chapman Stick. Like, tell them I sent you." Basically, that's how I got the audition. That's too and funny. I wa- and I was the first one of the day, which is like you never want to be the first one of the day. And I walked out of that audition going, for the rest of my life, I'll be able to tell people that I auditioned for Blue Man Group. At a bare minimum. I, I had literally yeah. no, I had absolutely no vision for myself. Um, but again, it it really had come two days before. And I'd never touched a Chapman stick, which is a, a type of instrument that you tap on. So yeah, so so it was a good, it was a good week that week. <laughs> sounds like, it. it's funny. The, the only way I know I am is because it was back around that exact same time. I was actually a young lawyer and somebody who I was working with was um, really close friend with him. And because, and, and I ended up, I used to live in this like massive old warehouse in Brooklyn where like he would just, he had every instrument in the planet. He could play every yeah. instrument in the planet. And I just ended up there one night just like jamming into the late hours of night with these guys. And every once in a while he would just yell, rotate. And it's like, <laughs> no matter what he picked up, he would just destroy you on whatever instrument yeah. it was like your best instrument. He was like a stunning prodigy with yeah. what he was capable of. It's funny that, that there's that intersection there. So that becomes then the moment. No, that's not the moment. Okay. No, no, no. So we're still heading towards it. Well, yeah, we're heading towards okay. it. So I, I got hired at Blue Man and, and I remember the the, the, the the woman, the theater manager, she goes, not the, the the company manager, whatever she was, she says, the starting pay, I'm not even joking. This was, this was don't make this mistake. Although it was really funny and cute. She, she, she says, the starting pay is 90. And I looked at her in the eye and I said, $90,000 a year? <laughs> And she goes, $90 a show. And I went, okay. (laughs) $90 a show after taxes is, you know. In New York City, not a lot. Not a lot. But- I was, I loved the job and I, and I was never great at it because I never took it seriously enough to, because I, I, I wish I'd never given it up to be honest. Cause I know a lot of people who have, have interesting other careers, but they still have blue man. They still sub for blue man. And I, I, I wish I'd never stopped subbing, but I did. But anyway, and the reason I stopped subbing, it was because I got signed to Sony. Uh, so I got signed to Epic Records, which is, this is, you guys, if you were listening, this is insane. I was I wasn't even 24. I think I was still 23 when I got the deal. The record came out. I was 24, my second record. I was on a major label. I am a guitarist that does not sing at this point. And I was given, like, they're throwing money at me while the entire, like, while Rome is burning, while digital is everything, streaming is everything, downloading. No one wants to buy, No, everyone knows the value of a CD and it's zero, like music is worth zero now and they're still throwing money at it. So it was just this crazy, crazy mm. time. And, you know, I'm going to these meetings with these people and there's just, just, just like money is just spilling out of every orifice. No one sees it. No one gets it. No one is like, none of this will be here. 
at the same time, no one was trying to make me a star. I had the, you know, what are they going to do? Tell me I'd play guitar differently. It was like, it was just the strangest thing. And I'm so glad, I'm, I really am so glad that I witnessed it. It, it was, I think it was a v- interesting turning point in my career. I, I love the record, likes to make us longer, but it was just the, just witnessing it all go away in that time mm. was fascinating. Because that was like right, that it was like was, the early days of when everything changed. But it happened really it fast, happened it feels like. It happened so fast. Right. It was like, by the, time I, by the time I was done with that record cycle, we couldn't find the phone number and email of a single individual we had we had worked with. They were all gone. Everyone had been fired. Okay, we, had, we couldn't wow. even find a lawyer who worked at Sony to, uh, to like dismiss me from my contract. <laughs> it was like just like, watching every single wall just flop, 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 flop all around you. And, you know, and just like, like, like these people would do. And I say these people, these are not bad people. These are just people that were not being instructed in a wise way of like where the future was headed. Mm. And so, you know, for instance, the... A&R guy from, from Epic wanted to drive up to the studio where we were screwing around, basically, spending money. Because that's what you did. You screwed around. You made, you know, made records by screwing around in a studio that was expensive. And he drove up and wanted to know what was going on. And I remember looking and seeing that his car rental, for some reason, was like $1,000 to drive up in a special super SUV with, like, GPS. Whoa. And I thought, and then I, and then it occurred to me, I'm paying for that. Like that's out of my deal. <laughs> like no, no, no foresight that that money was not going to be there. So, I mean, beyond just the incredulity of that, the whole scenario, you do this, you go out with them and then everything starts to change. And so like when that whole thing kind of falls apart is the wrong word, but basically comes to an, an abruptish end. Yeah. It's kind of like another inflection point for you because you're like, okay, so how do I play this? Like, what's my next move here? And you know, like, do I stay in this, in like the industry path under label? Do I do my own thing? Like, where do I, who am I and what am I, where do I go from here? So being on a major label allowed me to purchase very cheap health insurance through mm-hmm. SAG-AFTRA. So I was a, I've been a SAG-AFTRA member <laughs> and, and then subsequently on COBRA insurance. Back when that was, I think, I mean, like, really, health insurance was a big deal. That was the moment that my mother said, Oh, maybe you can do this. And that, that was like the marker. That was the, mo- that yeah. was the marker. Uh. And I think, as a parent, and I'm a parent now, and I get it. At the time, I was like, Oh, you're just, you know, you're being conservative and weird. But I get it now. I mean, you know, if you have, if you have some sort of job security and security in your healthcare, then, that, you know, that's, yeah, that's what we're all looking for. So I think that was a that was a turning point of realizing that there are some serious paths to adultness, not adulthood, adultness mm. um, that I could feel happening. And I was also at that point had been totally self-supporting through music for years at that point. So it was, you know, it was looking interesting. But your 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 question about where do you go, I did want to try to I did want to try new things. And I wanted to try playing with a band. Mm. I did not want to invite that band to make a record with me. Uh, so I, I went to Chicago and I had already, had always been a fan of Tortoise and Sea and Cake and Post Rock and all that stuff. So I asked John McIntyre, who's the drummer and producer of those bands and many others to do my third record, uh, Until We Felt Red, um, which I think is an interesting record. And I sang a bit and I tried a lot of different instruments and there was a lot going on. There's still, everything's very guitar based, but it was just, I knew that I also, I knew this, I did not have another, I didn't have a third great 
solo guitar record in my back pocket. So I had to stall. Mm. <laughs> I just stall for like the next seven years. You're like, keep pointing people like, look over there, look over there. It kind of was. And it was also uh, just a, you know, again, like there was, because there was no plan and because the industry is in free fall, it was just, well, let's just try whatever. I mean, there's no, there's clearly no, you know, I'm making my own path. And no one's telling me, well, you need to do this. Or do I mean, I had friends that were signed to Epic and people were like, you know, getting them stylists, making them dress differently. Mm. And I was like, ah. I mean, that was always one of my curiosities with you, right? Because you come in, like you said, then and still like for to a large part now, you know, the industry generally has like a, a, a mold. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, so which one of these templates do you fit into? And we're going to find the closest one. And then we're going to kind of like change you to fit mm -hmm. into it. You know, and that's kind of the way. That's why they want I to said reproduce. it's insane. So you show up and they, they don't even try and do that. Because I was such an outsider. It's right. insane it's that like, they were yeah. signing, that they were signing a, a solo acoustic guitar player to a major label with right. a major label deal. That is crazy. That is just burning money. I mean. <laughs> It's burning money on a, even, even if I was like a super, you know, hot, sexy babe that like played guitar in a bikini, like it's just throwing away money. Like no, like 2% of the population listens to instrumental music. It's not a big market. And so what they were thinking, they were not thinking. It right. was, I was a vanity project. It was like, let's do this interesting thing. I remember my A&R guy being like, well, I saw a photo of you and you were wearing black and white stripes. And then I thought, oh, the white stripes. And I was like, that's not a connection. That's not a thing. Like a, a striped shirt and the most popular rock band on earth at the uh, at that moment is not, a, that's not a thing. Right. But You're just grasping at straws. Yeah. yeah, they were grasping at straws. They were looking for the template and they had none because it was just, you know, crumbling. Uh. So, um... So I think it's just an, a fascinating anomalous thing that happened to me. Yeah, but it really frees you to just kind of be like, okay, so if, a, if one of the biggest labels can get behind me without having to change me. Yeah, like, I'm really fortunate what about What if I that. can, like, maybe that's also a signal that I can move forward in this industry and, and still be me. I think that um, I do. <laughs> I think I was trying to be me harder than anyone. <laughs> I remember that we re we realized that no one knew I was gay. There was like like I remember I had my like I I had my lip pierced and I was playing on I played on Conan O'Brien with my lip pierced, but the lights were so blown out you couldn't even really see it. And not that a lip piercing means that you're gay, but at the time it was kind of a, you know, sexy, cool thing for little young dykes to do. And so it was like, how can we get this information to the people that need it? Let's hire a gay publicist. So we hired a gay publicist literally to just work gay press. So no, it was, it was almost like, let, let's tell the world more because when you're not singing and when every interview is about you know, how wide is your nut on your guitar? I mean, like the most yeah. just uh, like comatose types of interviews about gear and about technique and blah, 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 nothing about feeling or emotion or writing or history or anything. That's all the people knew. So it was like, I really, and this is pre-social media. So yeah. I had to get out the word that I was cool, which I wasn't. And, you know, that I had something to contribute as a human. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What was it like, though, for you to share? Because it seems like as much as you're forward-facing with your music, for a lot of the time, there was a boundary. There was like you were private with a certain part. I mean, what was it like for you to start to, start to say, no, I want my public quotes there, right? To kind of know more of me as a human being and to let them in to be more more like publicly vulnerable and open. I will say this, like if, it, God, what would be the time frame? I mean, 2005, versus now completely different story because you're still in charge of the narrative 2005 is you are interviewed by who you want to be interviewed by or who would you know who will bother to interview you and um but you there is no other there's no access point to information other than you and then some like hardcore crazy fans making you know right mixtapes in the basement yeah Yeah. or like websites that are you know, that have like awkward photos of you, which is, you know, thanks. Thanks for that one, guys. Still really, still really appreciate that, you know, series of double chin photos. So no, it's, it was still at that time, like not a problem because I had always, you know, I never hid who I was about any, anything really. So it, you know, and again, like you're right about saying like there was no, yes, there was Conan O'Brien, but I like went to work the next day at Blue Man. And then there was David Letterman, but I still had 500 roommates and was living in a loft in Bushwick. I mean, you know, there was no like, let's like elevate you to this point of, you know, crazy success. It was still very, I was a working musician. Like I had to go to work. I had to find the next gig. I had to plan the next tour. We had to figure out the next photo shoot. We had to do, all the work was Mm. still being done. So it was never like, I never lost my head in that, in that particular aspect of it strategically what I would I've done different things sure I mean hindsight's twenty twenty always but at that time in the sort of 2005 2006 I felt like I was I was making really good work I was living my life I had relationships I had friendships I had you know things were okay yeah and as you're building also so you're you basically take full control over your career at that point you know, I had I, I I had my manager, I had my my you know label manager, and they were good friends, and we all, you know, we I I had a good team. I had a great yeah. publicist. I had a, I've always had a good team, and I've been fortunate. I've had you know my I had a guitar company behind me. I've always had a great lawyer. I mean, like I just I've always right. had support. So I'm not. This is not me doing this on my own at all. But it was never like 
what I wanted or what I saw was never like, that's a dumb idea. It was like, all right, let's try that. Um, mm. I started to play lap steel and I played so badly. Lap steel is a hard instrument to to play well if you're beginning. I played so badly that my managers would leave whatever gig it was. As soon as I brought that thing out, they'd leave the room because they couldn't, <laughs> they like could not <laughs> like, bear. Make sure nobody's recording. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, Jesus, you know, and then eventually I became a very accomplished lap steel player and it's featured on many of my records. So it was never like, don't do that. It was like, uh, we're just <laughs> We're just going to allow you to embarrass yourself and right. do it and in not, private. Yeah. Let us know when you're ready. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it sounds like there was just a chunk of years after that where you were just kind of like playing nonstop. Yeah. You were touring, I toured you were on more the road. than half the time, which right. is disruptive yeah. and difficult. I mean, be, because on a personal level, but also on a creative level, I mean, it's yeah. got to be like there's a, a strong tension. You want to be out and playing and interacting with people at the same time. Do you feel like you. Can can you really get into the creative space that you need to get into when you're on the road? Uh, no, but I think that um, I started to use soundcheck as a place for that. So any, you know, there's something about, um, you know, like, yeah, I started to, I just started to practice new, new material during soundcheck where, you know, I've got the subs bumping under me. I've got, you know, great sound in the, in the, and if the fallback was really great through the monitors, I was like, I'm going to sit here for a minute. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do my thing. So cumulatively, so not in a day, not in a week, but over time, over years, things get written, things get worked out. So a couple of things happen. I guess we're going back four or five years now, right? So one, you fall in love. <laughs> I did fall in love. Yeah. Um, get married. I got married. And I guess not soon, too far after that, become a parent. I did, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm always curious with this. I'm curious how parenting affects every person who's sort of like devoted to a craft. I'm, I'm even more fascinated when part of that craft requires you to go into, like just spend a lot of time almost like in your head uh -huh. um, and on the road. Yeah. Um, how, how that sort of like affects you and also how being a parent affects what you create. It's pretty fucked up. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I approach life like life is just a creative act. I think that people say, I'm not creative. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, but you tried to choose what you wanted to eat for lunch today. Like life is creativity. And I did not know that I wanted to be a mother until I met the person that I could be a mother with. So meeting my wife was the, the, the missing piece. Luckily enough, so this is very interesting at this very particular point in my life. So we're, we are going back like five years. I had, yeah, it was about five years that I had just created the show that I have been touring for five years. And it was a multimedia show where the guitar is white. It is lit up with projection. There's a screen behind me and there is a ton of amazing music and amazing technology that allows me to use the guitar to control what you see. There's just, it's a, it's a really great show called The Next is a Bridge to the Body. We'll, we'll link to a, a, I know you have a video up on your site. It's it, even, yeah. even that clip is kind of mind blowing. <laughs> so that, and it was, a, it was again, all part of my quote unquote research into expansion of the guitar and the redefinition of the guitar. So the good news the first time around was that I made this show and about five months later, six months later, my daughter was born. So I had something 
Like I had it, it was like in the box, it was ready to go. And now it took a long time. I had to still go through things and I had to fire a bunch of people and I had to, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult. But at that, at least in terms of the artistic thing, the artistic process, that was done. And so I got to, yeah, I mean, I went on the road for sure. And I had to leave my cute little family and it was definitely hard, but it was also like that, that was just a given, like, this is how I support the family. This is what I do. This is, you know, that's not going to change. And so my son was born almost two years ago and I am currently the mother of two children who are under five and trying to work on a new project. And it is very, very difficult because it's very, very different. I want to stress that it's not difficult because of the children, because that's, you know, I mean, like everyone has an obstacle. It is just so different. And that is what I'm trying to get used to. So yes, the things that the hours spent in my head, you know, playing guitar, writing, et cetera, and the, the limit, you know, the fact that I don't go on the road nearly as much and trying to work that out. How do I, you know, how do I maintain the same, like, you know, a level of stability financially without spending half the time on the road. All of it is an equation that is different, but I've been told by so many people who have gone through it that this is a phase of your life. This is a season of your life. And I am currently working on not one, but two projects. And they're to they're very different. And a lot of them are in my head and a lot of them include a lot of things. But again, it's sort of like that cumulative thing where no, not every day is going to be free all day long to to write music and to do as I choose. There's going to be a lot of like, you know, feeding and bathing and nurturing and reading to and packing the school lunch and, you know, making like I had, you know, I, sp I spend most of my time like a new part of my life is that I have to be friends with the moms at school, the parents at school, because they have all the intel. They have all the information about like what's the cool summer camp and what's the thing, you know. So there's a whole, this is a different part of my life that I need to nurture. And I love it. I love parenthood. I love my children. Creatively, I am learning to figure out this difference mm -hmm. because the way I've, the way I put it, if you have the entire day, week, et cetera, totally free with no obligation, you get it done. If you have a month with like a lot to do and a lot of baggage, it still all gets done. It's yeah. like give a thing to a busy person and it, you're, it, it's going to get done. It may not get done on the timeline that you seek or the thing that you, you know, wish or, you know, and there will absolutely be times when you're like, you know, trying to wash two muddy, slippery, eely children in the bathtub while they're trying to somehow simultaneously destroy each other. And you're like, why on the earth did I do this to myself? And then you put them to bed and you're like, oh, I miss those two kids. Mm. So it's just, um, it's different. And, but it doesn't go away. Does it change what I do? I'm not sure. Because I think that darkness and angst and like serious unhappiness that I've left very, very much in my past still is able, I'm still, I still have an access point to it. Hmm. It's like, my life is beautiful and happy and enjoyable. I walk on this earth, not interested in, like I said, not interested in who I am and what my needs are, but you know, how I can, I'm, I'm, I'm so much interested in what is going on on outside of me, inside of me. I've been in there for so long. No, I mean, I know what's in there nothing to look at. But there is some sort of like place that will always be a part of me. 
that I can sort of go to that draws out that need to make and that need to, that desire to create something because it's compelling and it still satisfies something dark down, some death wish, some kind of, you know, malaise or evil that is not walking with me at all, but still my brain still very much understands and observes. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if sometimes um, that shadow ever goes away. I, I don't. And, and whether it's even I don't an aspiration that, to make it go away. No, I think that it's, I think your life's, you know, everything that happens to you, yeah, is, you. is you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this feels like a, a good place for us to start to come full circle as well. So, um, so name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Oh, it's funny. The first thing I thought was gardening, growing something, having potential. Always have potential. I think that is that's something I learned from John Maeda, who has been a sort of interesting connector and mentor for me in recent years. But he was he was speaking about someone who was in their who had, who had had a life lifetime of incredible work that they had done, and they were in their eighties. And he said she has potential. <laughs> um, yeah. So always always having that need. Um, a good life is is one of you reach being out, you know, longer than your grasp. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, you have, uh, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, Kaki has brought uh, her guitar with her today. I don't today. know. There's an interesting guitar on this wall well, I'll, that I'm kind of into. So let's just kind of say like whatever you want to play, <laughs> like just grab whatever's calling you and uh, you can kind of swing the mic around. And... What do you call this? I haven't named it yet. Although you don't I'm, have I'm, to. I kind of feel like I do actually. going to demonstrate that percussive, non-percussive thing. Um, so the left hand is doing this. The right hand. But if I do... It becomes a totally different thing. That's drumming.
Thank you so much. Not a bad guitar, man. <laughs> Good job. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.